story of a long-distance marathon runner back in the 60s who, it was in the, the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, and uh, this guy finished last. He, in fact, he finished more last than almost anybody's ever finished last. He came in uh, injured. He had gotten injured on the race. In the race, he had gotten hurt and hobbled into the stadium, bloodied and bandaged, and it was more than an hour after the rest of the runners had completed the race. And only a few spectators were left in the stands when this man, his name was John Stephen Akwari. He's from Tanzania. And when he came in an hour after the last person had crossed the finish line, there's only a few people watching him. And he was asked, you know, why did you continue to run despite being injured, despite the pain? You're obviously not winning anything. You're coming in an hour after everybody else. Why did you run? And his reply was this, and I quote, my country did not send me to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me here to finish. What a cool thing that is. Now, stories like that are inspiring. Of course, none of us want to finish the race last. You don't start out running the race wanting to lose. That being said, when you hear something like that, when you hear a story like that about a race and a runner, you think about, okay, well, how does that apply to me? We can't help but think about what does this mean? And, 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 and I, I heard a story like that when I read it and thought, man, I need to do better at finishing. It's easy to start things. It's a lot harder to finish things. A lot more people uh, get married than, and, and, and then their, their marriages end at the wrong time, right? And, um, and, and a lot of people start businesses. They start things and they don't finish. And, and so when we hear stories like that and we apply this idea of a race to our life, you kind of realize that racing is a good metaphor. A race is a good metaphor for things in life. Um, there is a start to life and there is a finish to life. There's a striving, there's a moving forward in the midst of start and finish. This in-between, anybody in here in the in-between? That's all of us, right? In-between start and finish. We don't know when our finish is gonna be. We've already, anybody here started yet? <laughs> you guys seem a little bit confused. You get the metaphor, right? Um, we're striving, we're moving forward towards, towards the end of our lives. And, and, and we've been doing that in the book of Hebrews. Within the next few weeks, we're going to finish the book of Hebrews. And uh, it feels like a long time since we, back in November was the last time we studied it. We ended in chapter number 11. But within the next few weeks, we'll finish our study. But if we've ever considered life as a race, we're in good company with the preacher, the author, of Hebrews. And as we came to chapter 12, we, we looked at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 last time, and we viewed it as a race. We viewed it as we read in chapter 12, verse 1. Go, to, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, if you're not there already. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race 
that is set before us. And reading that verse, if you close your eyes, you can almost hear it. You hear the people in the stands cheering. Okay, we're all gonna close our eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Everybody, okay, now everybody cheer. Yay, woo! It's like you can hear it, right? You guys did good. You think I'm weird, it's okay. Um, you hear in this verse, he says, where a compass was so great a cloud of witnesses, throngs in the stadiums cheering. Who are they? Well, we said last time that there are those who have run the race before and entered into eternity. And in fact, chapter 12 comes right after chapter 11, which tells of this great chapter full of people who ran the race before, Right? In chapter 10, verse, 37, uh, verse 38, he says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. We're not people who flunked out. We're, we're not, he's talking to the Hebrews and talking to believers. We're not of those people. We're not from the same stock of people who started the race and didn't finish it. Who, who started the race but then got caught off track. We're, we come from a long line of people who, although they sinned and were not perfect, live by faith. And that's what he says. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The just shall live by faith. And then he says faith is the things. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good report. Verse 4 says, by faith Abel. By, verse 5, by faith Enoch. Verse 7, by faith Noah. How many guys were in Sunday school this morning and learned about Noah and his faith and what God did there? Verse 8, by faith Abraham. He talked about being the faith of Sarah. Verse 17, the faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, who's a picture of, our, of Christ. Verse 20, um, verse 20, by faith Isaac. Verse 21, by faith Jacob. Verse 22, by faith Joseph. Verse 23, by faith Moses. You guys get the picture, don't you? And he gets down to verse 32 and he says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousnesses, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to the flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings. They moreover of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted and slain with the sword. They, were, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, but having promised, provided something better for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. These are the people he's talking about. These are the people Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Seeing that we're encompassed about by these people who live by faith, not by perfection, not by works, but by faith. 
those people, when we see those people, let's lay aside every weight. Let's realize that we're in a race. And let's run this race well. Do you see what he's saying? Do you get the context? We're in a race. You are in a race. And how you run matters. These people believe the revelation that they had and lived according to it. We have the gospel. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. We live lives of faith in that gospel. Their faith then produced works, and God graciously received them the same way he receives us. And who are they cheering on? What does it say? Seeing, seeing that we are also compassed by with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that says before us. Who's running the race now? We are. Who's cheering us on? They are. It's us. It's those who have trusted in Christ and the races in this life. And I want you to know what we do in this life impacts our relationship with God. What we do in this life impacts our relationships with others. How we live matters. How we live impacts other people's eternity. And, and, and I don't know about you, I want to win. Not because I can win on my own, but because in Christ we can win. And so there's a way to win and there's a way to lose. And, and so here's the big idea for today's sermon. We're running a spiritual race. And to win, we must understand and respond to five factors in this race. Now, as we go through verses 2 to where I'm going to end up today in verse 13 or 14. He starts out with this race metaphor, and it seems like he abandons it, but by the end, he gets back to it. So stick with me, okay? I don't want to do damage to the text. But we're going to see five factors in this race that help us to run to win. Do you want to have an incredible 2024, spiritually speaking? Do you want to have an incredible 2024 relationally speak? Hey, listen, I don't know about you. I think 2024 is going to be an, just an insane year. There's a, lot of, there's a lot going on in our culture. There's a lot going on in the world. Has anybody noticed? Has anybody turned off the news lately? Just overwhelmed, right? That's where I've been. And so we've got to run well. We've got to run well. How Trinity Baptist Church functions this next year will impact eternity one way or the other. And how you run this race this year is going to impact those around you. And so, what are those factors in dealing with this race and how we win it? Here's factor number one. Look at our example. Our example. If we're going to run the race of this life well, we need to follow an example. And he gives us an example. Look at Christ's example. In verse 2, we saw that he is the ultimate example, and his example is an example of endurance. Look at verse 2. Looking unto who? Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, do you see the word? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is sat down. That part of his race is over. He has 
won. If you want a good example, look to people who win. Jesus won, right? And it's not, the whole race isn't over, but, and he's going to win, trust me. Um, we sang about that in that last verse, right? Do you want to win? Let's follow his example. In verse 3, now we're going to focus more on his example, looking for how to live and run. Look at verse 3. For consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weird and faint in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. If there is anyone that needs, needed patience or endurance, it was Jesus. He, it says here, he endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself. You want to talk about somebody who is against everybody. Who, let me say it this way. Who everybody was against him, it's Jesus. You know, your sin makes you the enemy of God. When we sin, we make ourselves the enemies of God. And so when Jesus came, he came into a world of sinners. He came to his enemies. Now, the good news is Jesus loves his enemies. He came and died for his enemies. But no doubt, he, he, he endured a contradiction of sinners against himself. Jesus was sinless, and he lived with sinners. Everyone can be put into one of three basic categories, according to Proverbs. Proverbs talks about wise, he talks about foolish, and it talks about evil people. In comparison to Christ, all of us are evil. Jesus was always dealing with foolish and evil people. His disciples were those who were sometimes foolish that he was trying to teach to become wise. One of the disciples was evil and ended up betraying him. Jesus endured people who were sinners against himself. He had enemies. Because of his righteousness in word and action, he made people mad. Have you ever made somebody mad by doing the right thing? That was Jesus' whole life. And, and it came down to this. They ended up crucifying him because they were so against him. Jesus did resist those evil people, it says here, unto blood. Why? He was striving against sin. The author points to his readers that they have not yet striven against sin for God to the point of enduring physical harm being done to them. And yet that's exactly what Christ did. Who agrees? Christ had endurance. He had endurance every day getting up, watching people do things that went against him. The creator became like his creation, yet without sin, and he watched his creation defy him, and yet he loved them and cared for them, and he died for them. He, he gave his own blood for them, for you and me. An amazing thing. Running this race takes endurance. Running and pain go together. That's why many of you haven't run in a long time. Anybody agree? Who wants to go running after this? Right, none of you. <laughs> like, I want to go to lunch after this. Right, sitting and eating is more my speed. I'm for you, yeah. But running and pain go together. If you run long enough, far enough, hard enough, there will be pain. Running faithfully means enduring temptation and difficulty. And this text says, consider... Jesus and how he endured for you and for me. We're told to look to Jesus. And I believe that looking to Jesus is a key, as, his, as our example, to running the race well. A guy named Leslie Dun Duncan told about a dog he had when he was a boy. 
His father occasionally would test the dog's obedience. He would place a tempting piece of meat on the floor and give the command, no. The dog, who must have, been a strong, who must have had a strong urge to go for the meat, was placed in a dif- difficult situation to obey or to disobey his master's command. Duncan said this, the dog never really looked at the meat. He seemed to feel that if he did, the temptation to disobey, disobey would be too great. So he looked steadily at my father's face. Duncan then made this spiritual application. There is a lesson for us all. Always look up to the master's face. If you, if you, if you focus on the temptation, you're probably going to give in. If you focus on Christ and his endurance, you'll endure. He says here, hey, consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and fade in your minds. Man, I can't make it. Well, look to Jesus. Be like him. He made it. He'll take you. So factor number one in, in, in running the race to win is following our example, Jesus Christ. Factor number two is this, not just his example, but our coach. We have an example, but we also have a coach. Look at verse five. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Okay, let me put that in Ben language. Don't forget the challenge that's been made to you before. Talking like a parent to kids. Ready? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. What does that mean? Well, Christ drove with sin, enduring even unto death. He did this to purchase our redemption and to provide resurrection life to those who would trust him. Now he strives with us, his children, to correct us when we sin. He will discipline us to help us do what is right. So the preacher here tells us, don't despise that. Don't faint at it. Don't get freaked out when you get chastening. We shouldn't despise it because it's evidence of love of the Father. Good and loving fathers correct their kids. Good and loving fathers discipline their kids. Fathers that don't discipline their kids aren't loving their kids. Well, my kids like it when I let them do whatever they want. Maybe for a time. But what happens when they grow up and they haven't had discipline and they reap the fruit of not having discipline? They may not even totally understand it. I know this will sound weird, but kids want boundaries. They do. They want discipline. One of the most loving things I can tell my kids, and they're all probably rolling their eyes right now, but one of the most loving things I can tell my kids is no. No. The other day, one of my kids asked for something. I'm like, I've got a gift for you. No. (laughs) I'm wrapping it. No. They didn't like it. But I love them. Right? We can't say yes to everything. So we don't correct it. because we, We don't despise correction because it's evidence of the love of the Father. Second, we don't despise correction because it's It's just that. It it does exactly that. It corrects. We're better off for it because chastening and scourging, which is spanking, from a loving father is always less severe than the pain that would 
come from not correcting that behavior. A received son is a love son. A love son is one who is corrected and trained. A parent and a coach have something then in common. Remember, we're already in this race metaphor, but now he's kind of talking about parents and kids. But stay with me. A coach uses discipline as a tool to help his team grow. Who agrees with me? One of my favorite movies, and you may judge me for this, that's fine. One of my favorite movies of all time is Hoosiers. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Hoosiers? I love that movie. It's a basketball movie. Gene Hackman is the star in it, and he's the coach. And the coach takes, the, here's the premise of the movie. The coach takes a high school basketball team after years of being out of coaching. And there are so many great life lessons in this movie. At one point in the movie, it has what every great sports movies have, a montage. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it shows these guys running around like crazy. They're doing all kinds of drills. And you hear the coach out in the background. And this is what he, the coach is saying. This is Gene Hackman. He's saying, no team of mine will run out of stream before, steam before its opponent. With only six players, we can't afford to. At one, at one point, one of the players asks, when are we going to shoot? Who likes to shoot in basketball? Yeah, some of you guys are black holes. I pass you the ball and I never get it back. Right. <laughs> when are we going to shoot? And Coach Dale says, I've seen you guys can shoot, but there's more to the game than shooting. There's fundamentals and defense. At one point in the movie, he tells them, before one of their first games, he tells them, you're going to pass four times every, before every time you shoot. He said, how many times are you going to pass? Four times. Yeah, four times. Well, in the game, one of his players defies him and keeps shooting. And everyone in the stadium is, oh, good job, you made the shot. Because he didn't pass, he just starts shooting. And uh, then somebody else fouls out. They only have six players, so one fouls out. He takes the kid out of the game. Even though he's making shots, he takes him out because he's disobeying. He's not passing, right? And so he takes him out. Then another guy fouls out, so now there's only four players on the floor. This kid gets up and tries to go in the game. He goes, what are you doing? Sit down. Well, there's only four players. Sit down. And the whole crowd is like, what are you? You're playing with four people? And you know what they did? They lost the game. Because they only have four players on the thing, on, on the floor. What was he trying to teach them? Well, without getting all the basketball stuff, he's trying to get them to play like a team. Teams always beat individuals most of the time. But also, he's trying to teach them to obey for his own good and for the good of the team. So later on, he goes into, into the thing. I'm not trying to exegete a movie, but you get the, I'm telling you an illustration. He goes in, he goes, what you need to consider is if you stay on this team, what you need to know is my word as coach is law. And that's what happens. Hey, here's the spoiler alert. They win the championship. They win in the end. But what did he have to do? He had to discipline his team. My point is this, that all good coaches, like all good dads, have to help their players, their kids, their runners to do things that they never thought they could do, that they didn't value before, that they may not even understand when they're going through it. Why are we doing this drill? This seems like a dumb drill. And it's hard and it makes me tired. Yeah, and you need to do it to be better. You ever ask your kids to do something and they have any reason they can't understand it? They don't understand it, but you know it's better for them than if they weren't to obey. How many of you guys experienced that? Sometimes God allows things in our lives and we're like, God, why did you let this in my life? And sometimes God's doing it because he's wanting to chasten you. 
He's wanting to discipline you. He's wanting you to learn something. So the worst thing you can do is to go through discipline and not learn from it. Some of you guys needed to hear that today. Consider that maybe some of the difficulty you're going through may be discipline, that God doesn't like the way you're living, but it does not that he hates you, he loves you. He can't love you and love the sin that you're doing. And so he's chasing you like a dad chasing a kid or like a coach disciplines a player because he wants you to win. That's what he's trying to do. So how do we respond to that? Well, you got to be teachable. Some of you have been hitting your head up against a wall for years and you haven't realized God wants to teach you something. Be thankful. Remember that this is an act of love from a loving father. And then be obedient. You know, it's just a lot easier just to be obedient. Trust the father enough to learn from hearing rather than just learning from experience. It's a better plan. So he's our coach. What's his strategy? Well, we kind of talked about already. Factor number three is a strategy. Look at verse six. For whom the Lord loves, he what is it? Chastens and scourgeth every son whom he receives. You know, we live in a soft culture that says, you just got to celebrate every decision I make. That is stupid. Sometimes the most loving thing I can do is to discourage you from what you're doing, not to encourage it. He says, a loving father chastens and scourges every son he receives. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, if there is no scourging, if there is no discipline, whereof all are partakers, if, listen, if you're a kid, if you're one of God's kids, you get chastened. Because if you're one of God's kids, you're also a sinner, and you do things are wrong, and God deals with you like a good father. God is a good father. And he's going to chasten you. If you don't receive chastisement, he says, then you're bastards and not sons. You're illegitimate. You think you're a child, but you're not. This text points to a clear practical teaching that relates to our relationship with God. A good father corrects his kids. A good father disciplines his kids. A good father uses a little stinging on the backside to keep his children from permanent damage. This is not abuse. It can be done in an abusive way, by the way. But when it's done, when it's done well, it's, it's, it helps with discipline. It is, it is abuse not to utilize some form of discipline. If a father does not correct his kids, then he's not being loving to them. God is a loving father, so God must correct his kids. Verse 8 tells us that if we never experience corrections, then, then we are kids without a father. Paul, Paul gives fathers instructions, Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't make your kids mad and vengeful, but bring them up in the nurture. Nurture means encouraging what's good, and admonition is discouraging what's bad. They're doing good, promote that. If all you do is admonish and you never encourage, that's a bad plan. That's how you provoke your kids to wrath. They need to hear no, but they also need to hear good job, way to go. Let's all try it. Way to go. Ready? One, two, three. Way to go. That your kids need to hear that. 
Now let's try the other one. No. Ready? One, two, three. No. Your kids need to hear that too. Some of you guys were a little bit more enthusiastic <laughs> on the no. You know who you probably need to tell no to the most? If you can't control the person in the mirror, you're going to have a hard time controlling and helping anybody else. So what do I, what, what's needed when I experience chastening? Prayer and introspection. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast not me not away from thy presence. Take not that Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Hold me with thy free spirit. Prayer and introspection. Repentance and submission. Again, verse 16 of Psalm 51. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Maybe some of the best thing that can happen this morning for some people in here is for some brokenness to happen. For us to realize, God, I have kept going against you. I've kept sinning against you. I keep doing the wrong thing and you keep chastening me and I keep being bullheaded and trying to fight against you, but no more. Cleanse me. Help me to stop. I want to repent. You don't want any more commitment to just, oh, I'll come to church. If you're just saying, I'll come to church so that I can keep doing the bad things I'm doing and hope that God is okay with the bad things I'm doing because I'm coming to church or because I serve in the nursery. God wants you to obey. Come to church, serve, but obey. That's what he wants. He wants a broken and a contrite heart. And that leads us to factor number four. What's his goal? What's his goal? What's the goal of our coach who's using the strategy of discipline as we're on this race? What does he want for you? Well, here's the thing. God is way better as a coach and as a dad than any of our earthly fathers and coaches would ever be. Look at verse, verse nine. This is what he talks about in nine and 10. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. Who, who here had a dad that ever corrected you? Yeah. If you did, by the way, that's a privilege. Not everybody has a dad that stuck around. And, 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 and that's an important thing. We had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. What is he saying? Some of us, when our fathers corrected us, maybe not in the moment did we appreciate it, but eventually, as you grow up, you appreciated. Do you remember the first time when you realized, you know what, I'm glad my dad disciplined me. Maybe some of you haven't got there yet. One day you're going to be. Shall we much, not much more rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, I'm a nerd. And you know what nerds like? Tables. Let me show you a table. Okay. Here's a table explaining these few verses. You have a comparison. There's a few comparisons. You have an earthly father and a heavenly father. Do earthly fathers discipline and correct us? Does our heavenly father? Cool, you got it. Do we obey and honor them when we, our earthly fathers? 
Sometimes we do, right? We should obey him. Who agrees we should obey our earthly fathers? And that when we do, that we give them reverence for having them raise us. He says, what about our heavenly father? Should we obey him? Should we? He says, much rather in subjection. He says, if we've obeyed our earthly dads, we certainly should obey our heavenly father, right? It's much more. Is it, who's worthy of more obedience? Our heavenly father is. He's making this choice. Hey, if you obeyed your earthly father and you reverenced him, how much more should you obey your heavenly father who's worthy of all of our worship? Then he says this, for, they, for your earthly father did it for a few days. A lot of you aren't living with your dad anymore. In fact, I would say most of the people in this room aren't living with their dad anymore, right? Um, I hope your dad isn't calling you up in your 20s and 30s and going, hey, did you brush your teeth? When's the last time you showered, Right? Because there comes a time when the time for parenting, the kind of time for discipline is over, right? So how, did he do it your whole life? No, just for a few days. But what, what about, what does he say in uh, verse, verse 9? Further, when we have fathers of our flesh, just correct us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spiritual lists and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, what does after their own pleasure mean? According to their own whims. There are times when my kids need discipline and I don't do it, and you know why? Because I'm lazy. Anybody ever been there? I hear my kids arguing upstairs, and I don't want them to be arguing upstairs, but guess where I'm at? Downstairs on the couch in the middle of the best part of the game, right? And so in that moment, when I should be a good father and go lovingly discipline my kids, I'm tempted in my own pleasure to be lazy. Anybody ever been there? Okay. So are we perfect fathers? No. He says... But he, so who am I looking out for when I don't go discipline him? Me or the kids? Me. That's not how God disciplines. What does he say? But he for our profit. Do you see that? Verse 10. But he disciplined us for our profit. Why? It says it right there. Verse 10 that we might be partakers of his holiness. Who's God thinking about in this chastening? He's not thinking about himself. Only he's thinking about, you know what God's plan for your life is? He wants to make you like Jesus. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to make you like Jesus. God said it this way, be ye holy for I am holy. That's his goal. He wants to make us holy. It's not for his profit, although it is. It's for our profit that we might be his partakers of, whole, of his holiness. By, 
The only way that this happens is when he lives out his life in us. So he disciplines us. He chastens us. That looks like conviction. Sometimes it looks like letting us deal with the consequence of our own sin. Sometimes he allows difficulty into our lives so that we'll turn to him. And that leads to this fifth factor. And I think it's, I think it's a key factor here. What's the key factor in us winning the race? We, we've, we understand we're in a race. We understand... What? Our coach, he, he's given us his example. He is in a position to coach us. He has a strategy, it's discipline. He has a goal, it's holiness. Then the last part, this last factor is up to us. It's our response. It's our response. Look at verse 11. What will our response be to his coaching? What will our response be to this goal of making us holy like Christ? Well, verse 11 says this. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. What does that mean? There's never been a time where I'm like, you're grounded. And my kids are like, thank you, dad. Finally, you love me the way I ought to be loved. Can it be for two weeks? Make it three. Why? That's not the fun part. It's grievous. Nobody likes it. Nevertheless, afterward, what does it do? It yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The word chastening here speaks to discipline that's external, coming from our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants to do right. We do not love to be disciplined, but a loving father sees a lack of discipline and must enforce that discipline upon his kids. That's what that chastening is. It's not something that we naturally come to with joyfulness. Here's the word that it describes it, grievous. It's hard, but here's the point. Discipline brings freedom. Discipline brings freedom. What do I mean? Here it's called the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's life. Think prosperity, think health, think wellness. This comes from the discipline that's exercised towards righteousness. The person who's disciplined in what they eat and how they exercise can do more with their body for longer periods of time. You guys agree? The person who's disciplined with their mind can accomplish more in terms of their capacity to think and to reason. Sometimes we're foolish and we think that we can fight God and be fine. We think that disobedience is no big deal. We think that God is like our mama, like he's not even tripping on our sin and in our drama. I just rapped a little bit. Okay. We tend to think that we can be undisciplined and it won't catch up with us. We think that we can escape the effects of sin and enjoy it for a season. Yet, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, the first thing is patience, endurance, patience. If God is chastening you, don't hate it. Don't waste it. 
Use it to help you to grow and to be better. Endure it. That's that second part. Endure it. It's going to produce a reward. It's going to produce a reward. Look at verse 12. Here's what he says. Back to the racing thing. I told you it was coming, didn't I? I told you it was coming. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know what that means? I used to run cross country. It was about 60 pounds ago. And when I started out, I'm going to try to do this in a suit. When I started the race, see my hands? They're up. Are you with me? I just made it from here to there. And I'm already like. (laughs) At the end, are you like this or are you like, are you with me? What he's saying is, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't quit. Keep running. Keep running. Keep running. Consider Jesus, who endured sinners, strove to blood. He didn't quit. He loved us. Lift up those hands that hang down. And yeah, you get older and you get those feeble knees. Some of you guys got replacements coming. And here's the, here's the part. You're like, Ben, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, but you got a coach. You got a bunch of people in the stands compassed by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin that does so be easily beset us and run with patience the race set before us. Look at what he says in verse 13. Here it is. And make straight paths for your feet. What does that mean? Here he appeals to the runner, who's the reader, who's his audience, to discipline themselves. He asks us not to give up or give in. He's appealing to self-discipline and self-care so that chastisement does not need to be continued. And when he says, make straight paths for your feet, he's appealing to making a plan for righteous living. You need a plan to live right. One strategy that Jesus gave us is what I call, and others have called, extreme amputation. What do you mean? Jesus said it this way, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Let me, let me make that real practical. If you keep messing up on the internet, get rid of the internet. It's 2024, Pastor Ben. Yeah, like 25 years ago, nobody had the internet. And to get some of the things that some people look at, they had to go to some part of town and go into some store to get something they shouldn't be looking at. And now it's in our pockets. 
If you keep messing up with that group of friends, get a different group of friends. But they're at my job. Get a new job. You don't think God can take care of you? Extreme amputation. Another way to make straight paths for your feet, or what am I talking about? A plan for righteousness, a plan for obedience. You need to get in God's word. Running the race without proper nutrition will lead to exactly what it says, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. What does that mean? You're not going to finish the race. You cannot face temptation every day and win the way God wants you to win without getting his word into you. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. If this is like bread, if this is like milk, if this is like meat, then you can't just eat. You can't just come here and get fed on Sunday. Here comes the food. If this is the only place that you get fed and you don't feed yourself, maybe you're a baby and you need to grow. So you need to learn how to feed yourself. And then you need to feed others because that's what God's called us all to do. Another plan to make straight paths for your feet is to have someone you're racing with that can help you. When you, when I ran cross country 60 pounds ago, I noticed that I got better times when I had somebody running with me because they helped me keep pace. They helped me. And, and I noticed that there is, a, there is a synergy that happens when you have a team, when you have people with you. This is what the church is for at some level. This is what the assembly is about. James says, confess your faults one to another that ye might be healed. What stays in the dark grows. Sin makes you stupid. Light is an incredible disinfectant. And so... Community is a way of getting some people around you to help you follow Jesus. We have Sunday school classes. Now, in those Sunday school classes, they don't make you confess, by the way. What did you send like this week? You know, we don't do that in those open groups. But they, they will you get you started with some relationships with some people. When you come in here into the worship service, it's great. You get to learn and meet new people. Um, but when you go into those classes, you get to know people and they love you and they care about you. And that's what we're trying to do. We're studying the Bible together. The Bible reading plan now is kind of connected to what we're learning in Sunday school. So you can have a plan for your reading throughout the week and then you can get some instruction about it on the weekend at, at, in Sunday school with people that are like you. I think it's a good plan. And so, so you need that in your life. We have discipleship groups. Those are groups that do provide opportunities for men to be with men and women to be with women, to do life to, together and to, and to grow into relationships that do provide accountability where you can have someone that cares about you and you say, yeah, I'm, this is what I'm struggling with and can you guys pray for me about that? My point is you, you, need, you need that plan. You need people. You need God's word.
Why should we make a plan for this race? Why should we make straight paths for our feet? The author gives us the answer, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Be vigilant. Be sober. For your adversary, the devil, goeth about like a roaring lion, seeking him whom he may devour. We're in a war. We're not just in a race, we're at war. And when we run and we don't make provision for righteousness and we don't make a plan for going against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we're going to get taken out. I don't want you to be lame. (laughs) I don't want you to be lame. I don't want you to drop out of the race. He's talking about the runner that doesn't take care of himself through self-discipline. He's talking about the runner that's fighting the chastening of the Lord and not being teachable. And the consequences is dropping out of the race prematurely. And the consequences to that are not just to you, it's to everybody around you. Your church, your family, your kids. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Get some people around you to help you. Let's run the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's make straight paths for our feet. Lest that which is lame, so instead of being lame, we can be, what does it say at the end? But let it rather be, what's the last word? Healed. You know what that means? Race ready. Race ready. Not dropped out, but still in the race. Helping those that are running with us. Keep pace. Look into Jesus. And one day he's going to come back. One day he's going to come back. And we're going to hear those words if we do it well. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Would you bow your